Zachary Bartels is a debut suspense novelist. Um, he caught my eye because his proposal had a Stephen James endorsement already attached to it. Our AT&T studio, Zachary Bartels, is with us, the author of Playing Saints. The Saints come marching in, the power of faith and the reality of evil, and uh, we've got Zachary Bartels with us today. There are a lot of really good Christian novels out there. They're just not published by Christian companies or advertised as Christian novels. After years of declining sales, Family Christian Stores announced on Friday that it will be permanently closing all 240 of its stores by the end of And the 2015 Carol Award for a debut novel is presented to Kate Breslin for such a time as this. Writing Christian fiction, exclusively Christian type fiction, is not where you want to be right now. Okay? This is Clinch, a podcast of fiction and not fiction. There's a relentlessly cheesy network of vaguely Christian, positive hits type radio stations here in Michigan. The kind of music that won't make your grandma blush, but also won't offend the non-believer who may be riding in your car with the stumbling block of, you know, the cross. When it comes to Christian bubblegum pop, I've always agreed with Steve Taylor, who said via the Newsboys, I've heard that positive pop you dig. I'd rather be buried in wet concrete. Still, I'm sure that these affiliates do provide Christian music to a whole bunch of people who otherwise would be listening to the light rock station. Besides, a couple of my good friends were instrumental in starting this network, so I'm not going to knock the station per se, but the DJs, oh, the DJs are hard to take. Now, I get to have an opinion here, because I actually worked as a DJ for a Christian radio station, WTRK The Rock, Bay City, Saginaw, for several years. Climbing the ladder from late-night evening news, to drive-time disc jockey, to co-host of the Top 20 show, to host of my own modern rock phenomenon, which may or may not have been called the Friday Night Party Zone with Zach Bartles. Anyway, the DJs on Grin FM, not its real name, are so bubbly and cavity-inducing that I can't even really deal with it. When I do occasionally catch a positive hit that I like, I'm very careful to switch the channel before the talking begins. But some time ago, I was actually too slow, and I heard an announcer say this. As you know, I've been studying for the ministry over the past couple years, and I've got to be honest, I've been pretty disappointed in what I've been learning about today's church. I just don't think we're meeting people's needs. I don't think we're providing the kinds of programs and services that will energize people and get them involved. I don't think we're preaching the kind of message that gives them what they're looking for. What do you think? I want to hear from you. Give us a call at 517-881-962. So I have a hard and fast no dialing the phone whilst driving rule, but I almost broke it. Because in a spine-crunching failed backflip of irony, that whispery DJ had accidentally identified exactly what is wrong with the church today. The fact that we try to model the church after what the world wants it to look like. And our message after what the world wants to hear. Now, I'm going to get perhaps uncomfortably religious for a minute. Not for me, mind you, but maybe for you. It's normal for me because my primary calling in life is that I'm a pastor, a shepherd. I kind of like that term under-shepherd that you sometimes hear applied to fallible humans doing their best to fill a Christ-like office in a Christ-like way. And what do shepherds do? They protect their sheep. They guide their sheep. And most importantly, they feed their sheep. 
Therefore, a shepherd or pastor's primary role is to feed Christ's sheep. I mean, see John 21, 17, along with guiding said sheep in the faith and protecting them from false teaching. I would submit that the main reason evangelical Christianity in America is in such a sad state is because the focus has shifted, in Spurgeon's words, from feeding the sheep to entertaining the goats. To quote the next verse from Mr. Taylor's lyrics, I've heard that New Age life force trip, and I'd rather be dipped in bubonic plague. By the way, for years and years, I thought the lyric was, I've heard that New Age lactose drip, which, if you ask me, is almost as fitting as it plays out in real life. It all kind of reminds me of an experience I had at Christmas about 10 years ago, my son's first Christmas. He was seven months old and still mostly on baby formula. Yet one day, when I didn't think my wife was watching, I I was holding him and I was sucking on a candy cane. Full disclosure, I was doing that thing that you do when you're a little kid where you try and make it super, super sharp and then pretend it's a sword. Anyway, I was crunching on the candy cane and I saw my son looking at me like, hmm, what is that? What are you eating? And for some reason, I rubbed my finger on the candy cane and I put it in his mouth just to see what would happen. And what happened was he got really happy and started beeping like R2-D2. It was hilarious until 10 minutes later when I tried to feed him. He wanted nothing to do with infant formula. And who can blame him, really? The stuff smells like old cream of mushroom soup and wet cardboard. But this kid wanted more peppermint. I could see it in his eyes. He only had like three teeth at the time, but I'm pretty sure that he would have gladly shifted over to an all candy cane diet in that moment. He didn't know what he needed, that formula has vitamins, minerals, nutrients, proteins, etc. He just knew what tasted best in that moment. Now, am I comparing the people in the pews to babies? Well, first of all, isn't that less offensive than Jesus comparing us to sheep? And secondly, Paul also talks about speaking to some believers, quote, as unto babes in Christ. So there's nothing elitist about this. Jesus is the good shepherd, which means I'm a sheep too, even while I'm an under shepherd. And if left to my own itching ears and spiritual sweet tooth, I'd rather have an all Cadbury egg diet than something substantive that will give me health and strength. But spiritual junk food is leading us to churches full of brittle boned, sluggish, spiritually unhealthy Christians. And what do we think is the solution? More surveys asking, what do you want to eat? What do your itching ears want to hear? More life advice, less gospel, and the ridiculous notion that Christ's sheep need to become, quote, self-feeders, leading themselves to green pastures. So what does any of this have to do with writing fiction? Everything, at least for me. I've always known I was called to write Christian fiction, if I was called to write anything at all. And as I began to have opportunities to do just that, a weird thing began to unfold. I was actually present for two different publishers' big sort of come-to-Jesus meetings, which were more like distance ourselves from Jesus meetings, in that publishing executives made essentially this announcement. In order to save our business endeavor during these difficult years for Christian publishing, we're shifting our focus. Instead of explicitly Christian stuff, think Frank Peretti's Angel Novels or The Last Sin Eater or some of these well-known novels, we're going to still do clean stuff, and maybe with some spiritual themes and overtones, but not this kind of in-your-face, distinctly Christian kind of book that stands out. Drop the God, emphasize the beat. I've heard that positive pop you dig. I'd rather be buried in wet concrete. You see, I can't do it. 
Now, I realize that most of the best and most profound and many of the most God-honoring novels haven't been written or published within the relatively new Christian fiction market, and that some of the cheesiest, most cringe-inducing saccharine junk has been produced in that market. But for me, that just makes me want to work that much harder, write that much tighter, innovate that much more. I think about my good friend Cliff Graham putting out amazing, heart-wrenching, pulse-pounding fiction for men with zero apology for the biblical content. Or about the people in my suspense writers group, Danny and Lynette and Creston, developing characters, tackling difficult issues, all from a firmly biblical point of view, without super convenient conversions to resolve the plot, or criminals who talk like Sunday school teachers. I'm not going to lick my finger and stick it in the air to see which way the wind's blowing, even if it would help my writing career, and who knows if it even would. The market landscape is total uncharted territory at the moment, with ebooks, indie books, the collapse of Family Christian Store, who knows? Besides, to quote Martin Luther, who I often quote immediately after Steve Taylor, to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Just a minute there, maybe a year ago, I caught myself thinking, you know what? I preach the gospel boldly and clearly week in and week out from my pulpit. Why not go a little more mainstream in my writing? But here's the thing. That's just not me. If that's your thing, I'm not judging. Not in the least. Every novel doesn't have to be a, quote, Christian novel, just like every song doesn't have to be a Christian song. And you can honor God simply by writing well and doing it to his glory. But if writing Christian novels is what you're called to do, you better do it. I better do it. And do it faithfully. And I love hearing from people that one of my novels helped them get through a tough time or helped them understand God or the scriptures a little better. That they started podcasting my sermons after reading my books and now they're learning all sorts of new stuff and and feeling like they're growing spiritually. Just as I like hearing that people were flipping pages as fast as they could read and staying up till 2 a.m. because they had to know how it ended. I implore you not to bow to the demands of the culture. Search the scriptures, follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, seek the counsel of wise and mature believers, and follow your calling. And that's possibly as close a pass as the not-fiction stuff is going to make to the story of Trenton Marsh and Adam Marsh and Judith and Zoe and the little town of Clinch Rock. Previously on Clinch. Let me see if I understand you here, Trent said. You're planning to dress up in a costume and fight crime as a hero in Clinch Rock. That's insane, Judith. Think about it. Three break-ins, all of which have the floors at least partially pulled up. Seems like more than a coincidence. And the other two had holes in the walls. Even brought the plaster with them when they left. Hmm, Barton said. Maybe I should give these kids a little more credit. Or maybe they're not kids. Dan Barton, Varsity Wrestling. Trent here used to always threaten me with his dad because he was the chief of police. Funny thing, 
My dad's the chief of police now, too. Good thing I don't bully anymore, because nothing would be stopping me from kicking your butt. Jason's face twisted up. I cannot believe your dad chose that meathead's father to replace her when she asked, Would you like to come over for dinner tomorrow night? My father is grilling lobster tails. They're amazing. And he's just gone from hopeless crush to boyfriend to meeting Zoe's parents in the course of two days? It's a date, he said. Clinch, a novel, chapter 5. Trent got up on Monday morning at 7.30 and stopped by the Whitetail Diner for some breakfast before work. When the bill arrived, he noted with some annoyance that he'd just spent a full quarter of what he would earn during the day. Second Life Home Store, where he had been working five days a week for most of the summer, was a non-profit resale shop, taking donations of old but functioning appliances, unwanted furniture, and other home goods, and selling them at dirt-cheap prices to the public, ideally that portion of the public unable to purchase new items for their homes. The same local parachurch organization that ran the soup kitchen right next door ran the home store. The summer previous, Trenton had commuted 45 minutes a day with a friend of his dad's to paint lake houses in Ludington. It had been fun work and plenty lucrative. When he passed on the chance to do it again in order to lug and load two-ton appliances for peanuts per hour, it had seemed like a noble choice. His dad had been proud, but his muscles were always a little sore and he was continually annoyed that the vast majority of customers were middle-class homeowners and contractors looking to save a few bucks. All the while, Trenton's own savings account wasn't looking much better off than when the summer began. The first police cruiser arrived as Trenton was unlocking the store's large oak front door. It parked at the curb in front of the store, and Jesse Finn stepped out of the car and headed for the entrance to the soup kitchen. He nodded curtly when Trenton waved hello and walked right by. Rumor had it that Jesse was none too happy with Rich Barton's pending promotion to chief, thinking himself a far better candidate. Having been on the force longer than Rich and having volunteered to each and every overtime shift and detail during that time. A moment later, a second police car pulled up, lights flashing but no siren, and Chief Marsh emerged, looking tired and somber. Trenton stepped out the door. Hey, Dad, he called. What's going on? The chief ambled over and took off his hat. Soup kitchen was broken into during the night. Looks like the same people we've been dealing with. Seriously? We were just there last night, you know. The youth group. I know. You're all suspects, he joked, smiling weakly. Anyway, I better get at it. Have a good day at work. Trenton began wheeling some of the newer stoves and refrigerators out onto the sidewalk with a dolly, his manager's idea for drumming up business. But his mind was elsewhere, and he wound up denting two of them. For some reason, the image of Ed Piper skulking around the soup kitchen kept coming to mind. He didn't seem to have been volunteering in the kitchen, nor had he eaten anything. Could it have been more than a coincidence that the building was broken into that very night? No one seemed to know much about Ed, other than it was his first year as a counselor at Picture Falls and that he got under Jason's skin, and his apparent penchant for a particular chewing tobacco. Trenton's phone announced the arrival of a text message. His boss looked up at the sound. Trying to be sly, he pulled the phone from his pocket and checked the screen. Judith, of course. Did you hear? The text read. Soup kitchen broken into. How could she know that so fast? Their town was small, but another text, still not convinced? Before he could reply, Sean Taylor entered the store and whacked him on the back. Good to see you, camper, he all but shouted. Hey, man, what can I do for you today? Sean worked for his father, a local contractor, and was a semi-regular at the store. Looking for a pedestal sink, he said. You got any? Sure, follow me. 
Trent said, leading him to a back corner of the old building, where a variety of sinks and vanities were lined up like the skyline of a porcelain city. Hey, Sean, you mind if I ask you something? Not at all, he said, pawing through the goods. How well do you know Ed Piper? The young man paused and furrowed his brow. Not too well. Kind of kept to himself. He snores a lot. But where did he come from? Does he live around here? Sean rubbed his stubbled jaw. Seems like he said he just moved to the area. I'm thinking maybe the trailer park off 37. Why do you ask? No reason. Another text bleeped through from Judith, probably sent from her family's trailer at the park off 37, Trenton thought. Need to talk later, it read. Brainstorm, who would want to do this? Clinch Rock Wrestling Sucks. The words were scrawled in the same bright green paint as yesterday's message, but Adam Marsh wasn't buying it. Whoever did this was clearly playing up the teenager angle, and yet the chief had found shiny new nail heads in a small corner of the kitchen floor, and the same in a corner of the dining area. He figured the perps had carefully pried up the flooring, looked beneath, and then reattached it with a nail gun. Not exactly the behavior of kids blowing off steam. Not to mention they had somehow avoided both Tango and Cash, who had been patrolling all night, one in the car and one on foot. He tried not to judge their police work. The Main Street Business District was more than three-quarters of a mile long, with a number of side streets to cover as well. It wouldn't be too difficult to slip past two patrolmen. Still, maybe he should be the one to patrol tonight, as if he had the time. Chief Marsh jotted a few notes on his pad. He was happy to have sole command of the crime scene, as Barton was busy elsewhere. Adam's co-chief had borrowed a drainpipe camera from a plumber friend and was snaking it through the opened floors and walls of the town hall and sidebar, searching for any clues as to what the vandals may have been after. The vintage store, rerun, never seemed to be open, so they were unable to follow up there. It was a good idea, the camera. Adam wished he'd thought of it himself. Jesse popped his head into the room. Chief, they got the security footage from last night queued up if you want to have a look at it. Thanks. Adam walked back to the small office and plopped down in a desk chair. He could tell almost immediately that the footage would be of no help. The black and white picture was dark and incredibly grainy, showing a wide hallway, which he recognized as the main entrance. After a few seconds of no activity, he hit the fast-forward button and told Jesse, This may take a while. Why don't you head back to the station? You got it, Chief. Adam sank into the faux leather chair, feeling a wave of exhaustion wash over him. He'd been up studying the night before until about 3 a.m., and the office was on the dark side. Perhaps he should lay his head down on the counter and sneak in a quick power nap. Now, that could be humiliating if someone walked in on him. On the other hand, the insistent buzz of a cell phone snagged him from his thoughts. He rummaged through his pants pockets and came out with the vibrating phone. This is Chief Marsh, he said. Uh, hi, Adam, it's Chet Bushman, Adam grimaced. Hey, Chet, how are you? I'm good, uh, but could you do me a favor and answer this line, Pastor Marsh, instead of Chief Marsh? That way there's no confusion. Sure thing, Chet. I just got a little turned around. I'm sort of in the middle of something. He chided himself for getting his two cell phones mixed up again, causing worlds to collide. This sort of thing was happening more frequently with each passing day. No problem. I guess they haven't gotten to that class in seminary yet. I know you're still new to all this. He chuckled, but in a spiteful way. Adam swallowed back the words forming on his tongue and let out a polite chuckle himself. Bushman was one of five elders at Clinch Rock Community Church, making him Adam's boss in a very real way. The older man made it no secret that he had voted against hiring Adam as pastor, despite the enthusiastic recommendation of the retiring Dr. Party. 
He now seemed almost fixated on pointing out each and every one of Adam's pastoral shortcomings to anyone who would listen. Adam couldn't help thinking that the two speeding tickets he'd given him in the past year may have factored into this. I just wanted to touch base about a couple of things, Chet said, with the tone of a father about to lecture his son on the importance of making curfew. First off, don't forget about the board meeting next Tuesday. It's on my calendar. And I don't like bringing this up again, but you have yet to establish office hours. There are people who need to talk to their pastor, not to mention shut-ins who have not been visited all summer. Adam bit his tongue. I'm doing my best, Chet. It'll be a lot easier in a couple months when I'm no longer holding two full-time jobs, plus classes. You said that a couple months ago. I know. There are just a few more loose ends I needed to tie up. Chet sighed loudly. Unfortunately, your congregation needs you now, not in eight weeks. Ruth Fletcher was at the emergency room last week with chest pains, and Ruth Parker is having cataract surgery tomorrow. The police chief was no longer listening. He was rewinding. In the blur of fast-forwarded footage, a dark figure had entered the frame and walked right up to the camera before the picture went black. Adam? Uh, yeah, Chet, no problem. I'll talk to you later. He hung up. Stupid remote. He'd accidentally rewound right over the action. And then some, bringing him back to the empty hallway. He pressed play and waited for the intruder in real time. The phone in his other pocket bleeped. He dug it out, a calendar reminder, shooting with Trenton, Wednesday at 7 o'clock a.m. Early morning archery had been a weekly summer tradition for father and son since Trenton was seven years old. They'd yet to make it out once in the midst of police, church, and school appointments. Regardless of how packed his schedule was, he would not cancel this time. He clicked confirm. A phone was ringing, which, uh, this one. Pastor Marsh, he said. Hi, Pastor, it's April Summers. Adam cradled his aching head. Despite her pleasant-sounding name, April was continually bemoaning the state of everything. The church, her health, the country, the TV show where celebrities dance with ordinary people. What can I do for you, April? I have three different swatches of fabric for the new curtains in the library, she said. None of them really does it for me, but it's the best they had. Twenty years ago, fabric was cheaper, higher quality, and a lot more attractive. It's really a shame what's happened to the industry. Okay... So when do you want to see them? See what? The swatches. Adam felt like slamming his skull against the Formica. I don't really think I need to see them, April. Whatever you decide will be just fine. I trust you. Well, she said with a bit of a huff, when Dr. Party was here, he always signed off on these things. Still nothing was happening on the screen. He'd really overshot it with the rewinding. I'm afraid I just haven't got time, April. Thanks for the call. There was a pause, during which he could almost hear her deciding who to call first to complain about how pastors today weren't nearly as good as they'd been 40 years ago. And then she said, Okay then, goodbye. Before he could even set the phone down on the counter, the other one began to buzz. He waited a second before deciding on, Chief Marsh. Pardon? This is Adam Marsh? Hey, Adam, this is Nick from Historical Theology Class. Just calling to tell you that the study group tonight was moved back to 620. Still at the library. Uh, I'm afraid I can't make it tonight. Sorry to hear that. Don't forget, test tomorrow on the Antonicene Fathers. Adam felt a squeeze in his gut for just a moment at the thought of how unprepared he was for this test. But then the black and white man was back, right in Chief Marsh's face, and he mashed the pause button at just the right moment. You still there? The man on the phone asked. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll see you in class tomorrow, Nate, Adam said absently. It's Nick. See ya. Adam's eyes were locked onto the screen. 
He was looking at a frame of a man dressed all in black, including a black ski mask, reaching up with his left hand in the process of yanking the cable out of the security camera. Even through the grain, Adam could see the man's droopy eyes tinged with malice. They were unfamiliar. As he reached for the cable, the man's shirt rode up a bit on his belly, revealing the handle of a semi-automatic pistol. Chief Marsh leaned back in his chair, still staring into the eyes of this unknown man who was violating the security of his little town, and made a decision. As much as he wanted the madness of the past few months to be over, he knew he could not lay down his badge until he caught whoever was doing this, no matter how long it took. Nice, Jason affirmed. I don't think you can do better than that. Classic shirt and tie look. A little preppy, but not douchey. You look like Jeremy Renner. Thanks, Trenton said, inspecting himself in the mirror. It was a ritual that Jason would come over before Trenton went on a date to give him advice and encouragement and other input. Jason had been on exactly four dates himself, none of which had gone particularly well, but Trenton allowed the tradition to continue all the same. Actually, did I say Jeremy Renner? I meant uh, Elfelfa, you know, from The Little Rascals. Uh-huh. Because of your hair? It's way too plastered down. What'd you put in it? Trenton examined his hair up close. Same stuff as always. Jason shook his head. See, that's the problem. You should have borrowed my product. Then you'd have some of this going on. He indicated his own hair, which always seemed to defy gravity, sticking up all over the place in a display of calculated chaos. I'll have to make do, I guess. They heard a knock coming from the back door upstairs. I'll get it, Jason said, mussing Trenton's hair. You work on that. He paused, holding his hand up like a dead rodent. Ugh. He wiped it on Trenton's bedspread on the way out the door. Why is it so sticky? One thing Trenton loved about his new house was his bedroom, which was down in the basement and accessed through the garage, meaning he and his friends could come and go without passing through the main house. It had been an apartment for missionaries, home on furlough at one point. Taking over this room rather than one of the two extra bedrooms on the second floor had been a hard sell, but his dad had lacked the energy to keep on arguing. It made Trenton feel quite grown up, as if he lived in an apartment by himself. Of course, with his father rarely home during the past few months, he generally had the whole house to himself anyway, but that was beside the point. This was his bachelor pad, and he knew exactly how he wanted it to look, if he could ever find the time to make it a reality. Oh, Judith, it's you! He heard Jason call from the top of the stairs. You're looking... bizarre? Is Trent home? She asked. He is, uh, but your timing is a little suspicious. Huh? Suspicious? He's getting ready for a date? I just need to talk to him for a second. It's important. It's a date with Zoe, Jason was saying, from the other night, or did you already know that? His hair more or less repaired, Trenton took the stairs two at a time, intent on ending this conversation before it got any more awkward. Hey, Trenton, look who's here, Jason said, with something important to talk about, right when your date with Zoe is about to start. Huge coincidence, am I right? I just need a second, Judith said, looking at the wall between the two boys. In private. Jason snickered. It's like that? Shut up, Jason, Trenton said. We can go inside. He unlocked the door to the main house and led her into the living room, where he plopped down on the couch and put his feet up on a stack of moving boxes. So what's up? Judith brought her own foot up on the same box. She was wearing bright blue cowboy boots. What do you think? She asked, beaming. Of what? The boots. Someone brought them into the store today and I snatched them up. Um, 
Trenton was at a total loss. This was somehow urgent enough to interrupt preparations for his first date with Zoe. He wondered if perhaps Jason had been onto something, albeit in an obnoxious way. Oh well, at least she was off the superhero thing. They're a little odd, but you pull them off, he said. Right? And check these out. They came in with the remainder from an estate sale. She pulled two small white wings, about the size of an open hand, from her bag. Each had a shiny blue ribbon attached to it. What are they? You wear them on your arms, like up here, she said, pointing to her bicep. They look like regular porcelain, but they're actually aluminum oxide, so they won't break. She wrapped one against the nearby coffee table. I think these and the boots will set the tone for all of it. All of what? My uniform, Judith said, as though it was the most obvious thing in the world. Trenton groaned. Of course she wasn't on to something else. Judith was one of the most single-minded people he'd ever met. It would take a major blow for any sort of course correction to take place now that she'd set her sights on the superhero thing. Look, I've been thinking about this, Trenton said, and I just don't see how it makes sense. I mean, even forgetting that superheroes don't exist, even in New York or Chicago, Clinch Rock is way too small of a town. Everyone knows everyone else. People will recognize you. That's what the costume is for. It has to be good so when someone looks at me, they see the persona, not the person, you know? She dug in her bag for a minute and came out with a sketchbook filled with ideas for superhero outfits. It's hard putting it all together. I mean, in the movies, they just sort of draw it out and then suddenly they're wearing it in the next scene. But this is a big project in real life. Trenton opened his mouth to speak, but thought better of it. There was a chance that Judith did not fully grasp the distinction between movies and reality, but he knew bringing that up would not be a smart move. She was so eccentric that it was occasionally hard to tell if she was just being odd or if she was indeed full-on crazy. Either way, reading a book about, quote, insane faith was probably not the best thing for someone with Judith's tendency toward extremes. I know I want it to be modest, she was saying. In the comics, most of the female heroes' costumes are really slutty, which is totally demeaning. Trenton flipped through the pages of the sketchbook. The masks are really small. It's a domino mask. Lots of superheroes wear them. But it's only the size of, like, a pair of sunglasses. I mean, anyone who recognized you with shades on would recognize you with this. The mask is only part of the whole thing, she said. I'll add a beauty marker, too, with makeup, change the color of my eyes with contacts, maybe the color of my hair. What, you're going to dye your hair back and forth every night? She laughed. Ever heard of a wig? Trenton tried to tally up in his mind how much this would all cost, in both money and effort. At least that would delay her, hopefully long enough for her to move on to something else. It wouldn't be the first time Judith had jumped from one obsession to another without fully executing the first one. Then again, she had surprised him before with her tenacity and perseverance, not the least of which was joining the boys' wrestling team and competing for an entire season. Her threats of a lawsuit enough to keep her on the team, but not enough to keep Coach Fisher from turning a blind eye to all sorts of hazing and mockery. She'd also spent a weekend living in a shaft of the old boarded-up copper mine on a dare. Then there was the previous summer, which she'd largely spent hopping onto trains as they passed through Clinch Rock, riding them to faraway cities before hopping off and catching another back home. Somehow reality just didn't seem to confine her like it did everyone else. Trenton's best hope was that by the time she got all this stuff together, the break-ins would have stopped. After all, there were only so many buildings in downtown Clinch Rock. So? she prompted. So what? Which one do you like best? I think they all look cool, in theory. You could make a great comic book with these. She swatted the comment away with a wave of her hand. 
I also need to decide on a weapon. I'm thinking something from the Bible to go with the theme. Maybe a slingshot like the one David used on Goliath. I've been working on my accuracy and I'm really good. I think I might be a natural. You mean a sling, right? Trenton said. The weapon in the Bible isn't a slingshot like Dennis the Menace used. She rolled her eyes. I know. It's deadly though. Look, he grabbed his backpack from the floor and pulled his radical teens study Bible from the front compartment flipping the worn pages until he found what he was looking for. Look at this. Judith sat down next to him and took in the drawing of the weapon. Trenton read out loud, The biblical sling was comprised of two leather straps and a pouch from which the ammunition was fired. A good sling could carry its full force to the distance of 200 yards, and skilled slingers could hit their mark from that distance. The Benjamites could sling a stone with enough accuracy to hit a target the width of a human hair. There are accounts in antiquity of lead ammunition being hurled with enough velocity to melt mid-flight from the friction of the air. Being hit by one of these was the equivalent of being shot with a musket ball. Judith smiled. You could kill somebody with one of those, Trenton said. I'm also considering the ox goad. What? What is that? I'm not entirely sure, but in the book of Judges, this guy named Shamgar took out a whole army of Philistines with one. Tell me this is all a joke, Trenton pleaded. You're trolling me, right? Judith turned and looked him straight in the eye. Not even a little bit. I think God is calling me to rescue somebody. Trenton looked around for someone to rescue him from this conversation. Unfortunately, he'd locked Jason out of the main house. You probably have to go, huh? Judith said. On your date? He checked his watch. Yeah. Where are you taking her? Nowhere. It's just dinner with Zoe and her parents at their place. You want to borrow the iron horse? You could show up at the castle in style. Trenton forced down a smile. No, thanks. I don't know if rolling up on your ancient scooter would score me any points with Zoe's family. It's not a scooter. It's a classic Honda 90. But you're right. Zoe wouldn't appreciate it. It's not snobby enough. She quickly packed up her things and hoisted her bag under her shoulder. Have fun on your date, she said. Hope you're not too low class for them. Clinch, a podcast of fiction and not fiction, is a Cardiff Giant production. Copyright 2017, Zachary Vargas. Produced in partnership with KD Enterprises. Theme music composed and performed by Bill Colon. Excerpted text from Clinch, a novel, copyright 2017, Gut Check Press. Special thanks to WAC Productions, www.wacfilm.com. For more information about me and my books, visit ZacharyBartles.com. If you'd like to drop me a note, you can reach me via email at Zach at ZacharyBartles.com. That's Zach with an H, the way God intended it. Or through the U.S. mail at P.O. Box 10003, Lansing, Michigan, 48901. Naturally, I'm also on Facebook and Twitter at Author Z Bartles. And if you're a little twisted, you may want to check out the Gut Check Podcast, www.gutcheckpress.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening.